I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. We're taping this on Monday, October 2nd, a day when we all woke up to the news from Las Vegas. We are thinking of everyone there, everyone dealing with this tragedy, and we'll process the week's events and those events in Vegas in our Friday episode. Uh, But today's deep dive, it's really timely. We talk about some big thoughts about life, about choosing to find joy in life, and about knowing that life could end at any time. But before we start, I want you to stop right now and Google three words. The three words are John Carroll Lynch. You know this guy. Even if you think you don't, you do. John Carroll Lynch is one of the most recognizable character actors working in Hollywood today. And he just directed his first film. It's called Lucky. It stars one of the great character actors of all time, the late Harry Dean Stanton. The film is actually based on Stanton's life. If you don't know Harry Dean, he's a very interesting guy. He got into acting in the late 50s after he served in World War II. And he died just this year at the age of 91. And this film was one of the last things he made. That alone is enough for a really good chat. But John Carroll Lynch and I talked about so much more. We talked about his work. We talked about acting as a craft. We talked about being a character actor. We talked about what even that means and how he gets into the mind of the characters he plays. He's got some really amazing stories, and he was really, really fun to talk to. So let's not waste any more time. Here's my conversation with John Carroll Lynch. John was in L.A. I was in D.C. Enjoy. Hey there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm Sam. Nice to meet you, John. Nice to meet you, Sam. You have a terrific radio voice. Well, look at you. Your check's in the mail. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I'll, I'll text you my address so, oh, yeah. just so it doesn't oh, yeah. get lost. Oh, yeah. You know, so I've been geeked out about talking to you for a few weeks now, and I've been telling my friends, hey, I'm talking to John Carroll Lynch, this actor you know. And they're like, John Carroll Lynch? And I'm like, hold on. Yes, and you got to show a picture. And then I show a picture, and they're like, yeah, that guy. That dude, yeah, yeah. I'm... How long have you been that dude? I mean, I've been fortunate enough to start working, uh, you know, uh, with the Coens. I think it was probably, I, I would say probably after um, Zodiac. That's when I started to kind of, to kind of become somebody who's one of those dudes. Uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, I have no, uh, I've had a great time working with a wide variety of people on a wide variety of materials. So when people recognize me, uh, they sometimes recognize me or they recognize David Koechner. Mm-hmm. Or they recognize other bald men who work. So, uh, you know, so that's always nice uh, to get compliments from other people. Like one time I was in a, an audition and a guy walked in and he, he, I said, did you do an X-Files? He said, no, no, I didn't. Why? I said, well, I've been getting compliments about an X-Files I didn't do and I thought it might be you. And <laughs> then another guy came in and I said, did you do an X-Files? He said, yeah. I said, man, people love you on that X-Files. <laughs> And so we sat in this audition room like the three monkeys, you know, with the eyes, ears, and mouth covered waiting for (laughs) our audition. And it was literally like, uh, I mean, I know there were differences between us, but it might have been a couple of inches here or there, give give or take, you know. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that. I got 
on Twitter, this probably weeks ago now, someone was very emphatic on Twitter saying, oh, my God, Sam, thank you so much for recommending that book about X, Y, Z. And I realized I hadn't read the book. Sure. And then I realized, oh, they're talking about one of my other black male bald colleagues <laughs> at NPR. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, and then I'm just like, you know what? I'll take the compliment. They read the book. No, That's good. I'm trying to do that. You yeah. Know, like uh, I was working on this uh, movie that I did called... Uh, anything and mm-hmm. i was walking in santa monica down to the beach and mm-hmm. it was a scene in which uh, i was going to take my clothes off and jump into the ocean yeah at sunset so i'm walking down to this scene and uh, people playing volleyball the the ball bounces and they look up and they go love you on the office <laughs> and i was like i was like thanks man appreciate it appreciate it I have not done the office, but thanks, yeah. thanks for the compliment. I didn't mention that. Better to be noticed than not noticed, huh? And also, like, I don't want to. I want to burst Why even go into it? Why even go into it? Yeah. it? You know, they're just really happy about somebody's work, and as well they should be for whatever joy they had from that. And if it if it makes them feel good to tell somebody, I'm okay with it. Totally. So I just want to, you know, for listeners that are googling you right now as they hear you talk, I want to go over your IMDb, which is like a mile long. Just recently, you were in The Founder, uh, opposite mm-hmm. Michael Keaton. You played LBJ and Jackie with Natalie Portman. You were in Fargo, the original film. On TV, you have done some of everything. You were Twisty the Clown in American Horror Story. You were in The Walking Dead, Billions, The Americans, Body of Proof, Big Love, The Drew Carey Show. You know, when I was going through the list, even I was surprised. I was like, oh, yeah, you were in Hot Pursuit. A film that I liked a lot. <laughs> yeah, I loved working on that. Anne, Anne is a great director to work with. She was a lot of fun. She's a great house. She made me laugh a lot. Yeah, and I love that that film knew exactly what it was and was just that. Yep, yep, it was 100% that. And yeah. I, I think that Reese Witherspoon is, is such a just talented phenomenal. comedian, and the two of them are yeah. such a great Mutt and Jeff pair. <laughs> uh, 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 it was so much fun. Uh, Sofia Vergara is hysterical in that movie, I think. Oh, totally, totally. And, I mean... And so you've also worked with a ton of different directors and actors, Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, David Fincher, John Lee Hancock, Coen Brothers. Of all of that, if you had to pick, like, one film and one director that you've worked with, like, which were the pinnacle? Um, the next one. Okay, uh, good I, I answer. Mean, uh, you know, I want to work, <laughs> so it's the next one. That's right. That's uh, right. But I, I will always uh, have a, a more than warm feeling in my heart for Joel and Ethan and Fargo because it started, it created a circumstance in which I was a legitimate film actor. So yeah. all of it flows from that font, uh, from that beginning of that font. I'd worked in films uh, before that, a couple of little roles that were really helpful to me in terms of the apparatus and mm-hmm. and everything, but that was my first you know part gotcha and you also do theater like when do you find time like one how easy is it for you or hard is it for you to get your head in such different head spaces for these different roles and two when do you sleep (laughs) well um i'm i mean because of the uh, it's interesting you ask about sleeping i I haven't (laughs) been sleeping particularly well Ditto. As I've been going through this uh, process with the film, but also mm. just in our world presently. So it's always, you always wake up with a kind of a, uh, please, nothing be terribly, terribly wrong. As far um, as the current events of the world right now? Well, the current events, but also, yeah, the, the current events and also things have changed a lot 
in talking about this movie because Harry died. So yeah. that also has changed the way in which um, you know our the conversations have been. But as far as the work and getting into the uh, the work, um, individual roles are always different. So it depends on the amount of time you have to prepare, and also the amount of material you have to prepare with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, you know, I was watching uh, an interview with Michelle Williams on my week with Marilyn, and she said, well, I've been working on preparing this for a year. And I was like, a year? <laughs> what would a year feel like? Like, what, what would a year be like? I'd be, be over the role that? before I played it. Yeah, like, well, it was, it's funny because I did, uh, and then I did this movie, Anything, where just before I acted in an 18-day uh, film, just before I directed mm-hmm. Lucky, an 18-day film, so... And I'm the the lead in that movie, and and um, I suddenly realized, you know, I'd been working on that part on and off for about five years because that's how long it took to amass the money to to make it. Yeah. So, so I did have a sense of what mm. you, what I do what I would do with a year. Was it hard? <laughs> uh, no, it was it was delightful huh. to be to be so to feel the the kind of the the bedrock of the material yeah. in such a strong way and then to have the whirlwind of a roller coaster 18 day shoot to do it so that was a the, always always a challenge and emotionally very it was emotionally very satisfying yeah so let's talk about uh your newest film lucky yeah. you directed it first time directing and you directed a friend of yours the legendary actor recently deceased harry dean stanton um i'm guessing this experience was just wonderful well, I can it was feel a, a, the wonder when I see the movie. Well, I'm glad. I mean, it certainly was a wonderful experience for me. My relationship with Harry, it's interesting. I I had met Harry a few times before um uh we came together in kind of this arranged marriage around around Lucky. Mm-hmm. But um he was attached to the screenplay uh as an actor before I was as a director. Mm-hmm. And this was the basis of the foundation of any friendship that we had was working on this. So yeah. I have this really kind of weird emotional relationship when around his death because there are people I know who worked in the film and who worked on the film that have enduring personal relationships with Harry that mm-hmm. last years and decades mm-hmm. and and mine is a sh- much shorter association so sometimes I feel frankly um, a little awkward about accepting condolences because I know how much people are grieving around me mm-hmm. in a personal way. Yeah. And and while I, I am grieving upon occasion, you know, it, it comes on me and I suddenly choke up or I suddenly think of something that happened on the set and I, I can't speak about it. Um, those things are uh, are based on the intensive work that we did together during uh, the production and pre-production, and then also the editing work I did with watching him over and over again in every moment of this performance. Yeah, you know, and I mean, having to direct such a legend. I was reading somewhere that you said when you first started directing this film you would like forget to yell out the word action. <laughs> yeah, the very first day, the very first shot, uh, we we were shooting it with uh uh Ed Begley uh, and uh Harry and we'd blocked it like you do and uh, we were ready to shoot and we'd set the first shot and uh they said uh sound speed rolling and then there was nothing and uh, <laughs> and I'm looking at Harry on the monitor and he's waiting and waiting and finally I see him go, "Well, just say action, man. That's the deal. That's why you did this, right?" I mean, <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's, that's my the deal. Line. That's, that's the, the deal. only line I had, and I blew it. <laughs> it's okay. It all came together. Two. Action and cut. That was it. That's all I had to say. Yeah, yeah. For those younger listeners here, um, introduce Harry Dean Stanton to them briefly. 
Uh, Harry Dean Stanton is a face that almost anybody in the last three generations would recognize. He's done tons of work, uh, obviously 200-some credits on his IMDb page. And the things that he's most known for recently, he was in a great scene in The Avengers with uh, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, He did Big Love. He played Mm -hmm. Roman in Big Love. And most recently, for younger audiences, he was on Twin Peaks The Return uh, playing Carl, I believe that was the name of the character. And so he, he's been working in the film and television industry for 60 years. He's been on everything from Paris, Texas to Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. He is the, he is the, guy. the quintessential character yeah. actor. Well, and, 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 and just thinking about why he's such a legend, I've heard a lot of people say that everything he did always felt extremely authentic and that he wouldn't even call it acting. Well, he tried not to call it acting all the time. I mean, he really he, that was really kind of a, his benchmark of his own look at his own work. And I think that you're right. He's always authentic. He's always true. He's always real. And he's never he's all he's he's at a place of being in his work. And that started very early on. That was so transfixing. Yeah. How do you? I mean, how, how do you think he got to that place of being? Because it's it's hard. I don't. Uh, I mean, man, I wish there were a pill. Uh, he, he, there probably was at some point, knowing Harry. But uh, you know, he lived a life. You know, he yeah. he sucked the marrow out of out of life, uh, yeah. and part of that might be that. He also was a searcher, both uh, intellectually and uh, and kind of in his heart, and so he was always looking for some kind of answer to both the work and the living of it. And I think that in some ways, that's part of what made that possible. There was also another thing that I don't know if it's something that's uh, aspirable, which is somehow the way light reflected off his face. It just wow. seems unfair, but he <laughs> always he always was so beautiful to look mm. at. Even in his roughest times, uh, he always seemed to be vulnerable yeah, and you know, it's present. Fu- yeah. I, I felt watching this newest movie that you directed, the whole film, I wanted to care for him. Yeah, I wanted to make sure he was okay. I wanted to get him a cup of soup, and he was not a nice man. <laughs> no, he's but I not still nice. wanted to do that for him. No, there's always a sense that you you can't help but feel compassion for him. Yeah, and that's what I guess in some ways uh, was his enduring kind of tone. His mm. key tone as an actor was that even when he's playing horrible people like Roman, yeah, uh, or like uh, his character in Repo Man, who's just awful, mm-hmm. that you still wanted him to succeed. I remember seeing that movie and at the end going, why am I rooting for this terrible man <laughs> to do something that he shouldn't be doing? Yes. Why, am, why, why does he, how can he put me in that position? And uh, he did it over and over again. So you have the challenge of directing a legend yeah. in Harry Dean Stanton and also the challenge of directing a movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. Was it just really, really hard? And what was that like? I learned a lot, and and, uh, the pain of it, when it was painful, was all about the pain of education, right? Mm. All about the things that you realize you don't know and need to learn quickly Mm -hmm. because there's not not enough time for you to waste to not learn it. Yeah. But it was was a challenge, and the material was so uh, drawn from Harry's life, so it was a personal uh, story for him. And I don't think he's done a, a story quite so personal in that way. He's spoken about many of the stories in the film before mm-hmm. but when you start saying okay we're going to put it down as a piece of art we're going to we're going to put a frame around it and 
we're going to create a, a character named mm-hmm. Lucky that isn't you, that lives in this small Arizona town, and we're going to take pieces of your life and encapsulate them inside this material to draw the audience to the thematic things that we want to talk about and to the emotional journey that the character's having for the point of this, it suddenly changes the relationship he has with his own autobiographical stories. Yeah, yeah. And that was the conversation that was so fascinating with someone who's an accomplished, such an accomplished actor, master actor. It's 60 uh, years in the business mm-hmm. and 89 when we worked together. So it was that was challenging to, first of all, as a first-time director, earn somebody like that's respect and also to um, recalibrate this very intimate material uh, into a new framework for both him and the audience. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a brief synopsis of the film for those that haven't seen it yet, but I don't want to give away spoilers. So help me out. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the story of a man who seems to have outlived a lot of others, and Mm -hmm. he is nearing the end of his life. He seems Mm -hmm. to be some kind of atheist, skeptic of lots of things, and in this end-of-life vignette we see of him, he kind of comes to terms with some big themes about life and existence and I think love. I, I think all all of those things are are true, um, with the exception okay. of the end the end of life, which is uh, one of the things I love about the movie is that uh, we don't know. Yeah, uh, we do, he doesn't know how long he's got. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have anything extantly wrong with him uh, throughout the film. There's uh, uh, he doesn't have anything that says okay, you have cancer or you have this or mm-hmm. you you know you've gonna, you're gonna die of whatever it is. His mortality, even at his age, is a question mark the same way it's a question mark for me. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know when it's going to happen. I just know that it's going to happen. Yeah. And what do I do with that? What do I do with that knowledge as a conscious? as a whatever relative amount of consciousness I have, what do I do with that truth today, right now? How do I digest that and live in a way that's meaningful? Did your work on this film change the way you answer that question? It certainly deepened uh, It certainly deepened it, and it reminded me again and again and again with something that I, I really think is good for me as a human being, which is to remind myself that uh, everything I do is in the valley of the shadow of death. Wow. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it can be a thing that clarifies meaning. You mm-hmm. and I are sitting on this, uh, you know, in this uh, interchange and uh, and we're sharing this moment and I can make this valueless or valuable based on how I approach it. It doesn't have to be anything but how important it is to me and you at this moment. If I can bring my life to that kind of essential presence, then I think I'm actually living the life I'm fully Mm. um, born to live. Mm. If I waste time by not being here, (laughs) then then I'm really, I really am wasting time. Wasting time. Yeah. What I took away from the film, which, spoiler alert, made me cry. Thanks for that, man. Um, You're welcome. You're welcome. I, you know, we see in Harry Dean Stanton's character, who tries to be very rational and logical and calm and clinical, in spite of all that effort, life gets to him. And whether you're religious or spiritual or not, life is going to make you feel something bigger than yourself. 
And yep. I felt that in this movie. Like, the turtle goes where it will. The turtle yeah. will outlive you. You will sing yes. at that backyard party. <laughs> and before you know it, life opened you up in spite of the best laid plans. And I just yeah. found that beautiful. Yeah. And the only thing I would add is it's a tortoise. Oh, I need to figure out the difference. The tortoises live longer, uh, right? Uh, uh, well, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, turtles live a long time, too, but turtles live in the water, and tortoises mm. live on land. That's, you know. that's as clarifying and simple a thing as possible for the difference. But it is what we play on, because people, they, they certainly, to us, they look the same. Yeah. This movie felt very spiritual to me, which I found quite interesting, because... Harry Dean Stanton is an atheist, and this film is about his life, I think, as an, a skeptic and an atheist. But you, mm. from what I've read, are Catholic. Uh, that's interesting you say that. I mean, I certainly am a, uh, uh, I'm a confirmed Catholic. I, I still go to Mass upon occasion, uh, mostly with when I go with my wife because I like going with her yeah. uh, to that. And I, I will always have to some degree whether or not I decide at some point that um, Harry Dean's essential faith in his atheism is absolutely correct and there's nobody out there. Mm-hmm. I will still have a Catholic worldview because I can't shake that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love a lot about what it is to be a Catholic. As uh, there, was a, there was a line in the movie that ended up being cut, which is about Christians, where Lucky says, well, they lose me when they get organized. And uh, <laughs> I think there's some truth to that for all of us, uh, even in the church at times. Yeah. You know, as a very unorganized Christian myself, <laughs> I really loved the way that the movie made me think bigger things than the day and the life right in front of me, which is what church at its best does for me. Yeah. And it felt especially grounding in this current news cycle of heavy hits every five minutes, it seems, to just have this film make me stop and understand that we're part of not just something bigger, but yeah. part of something that we have no control over. Yes, that we're that the world is the world and the universe are, are unfolding, uh, whether or not we kneel uh, at the national anthem. Yeah, uh, whether the, or not Donald the, Trump tweets. Whether whatever happens. Yeah, uh, there is going to be something that's going to drive us forward and draw us forward. And there are things in that circumstance that we control and other things that we don't. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible. Mm. It doesn't mean that, in my opinion, it doesn't also mean that we're not responsible and don't need to be engaged and try to change things on any level that we feel uh, are necessary for change. But what it does do is it creates a context. uh, The world creates a context for me that says, yes, and you're not in charge of any of it. Yeah. You, you you have to collaborate for any change, and even any change that we collaborate on is not going to change much in the spiral arm of our galaxy. Yeah. But it also felt like the ultimate message of this film wasn't entirely nihilistic. I mean, you have Harry no. Stanton saying, in spite of all of this, this bigness, this vastness, this inability to, to control, you still smile. I love uh, I loved that from the very beginning of, of reading the screenplay that what it talks about is the choice of joy, the yeah. choice, and it's a choice. The choice of happiness. That's the thing. The it's choice a choice of being present with joy with each other, and that uh, I don't know how many times I'm going to have to hear that to get that message, but I'm glad I got an opportunity to work on something that hopefully will say it to people and hopefully will say it over and over because because I don't know how many times. 
I have to hear it to keep reminding myself that that's the most important thing. Yeah. To maintain a sense of joy about this ridiculously beneficial gift of life. Yeah. I'm probably prying too much now, but besides from making great film and screen work, how do you choose joy yourself? Uh, I think it changes. Uh, certainly, my work over the course of my life has provided me with great joy. I feel at home at work and in presence uh, with other creative people in a way that's, that feels right to me and right to my soul. It also... I am uh, most grateful to be in an enduring relationship with someone and to be chasing intimacy in all of its difficulties uh, and all of its benefits with somebody who's willing to stand toe-to-toe and go after it. And I'm willing, I'm also extraordinarily grateful that I'm joyous. I have the joyous uh, feeling of being with grandchildren now. So that is unbelievably besotting. I (laughs) I can't tell you. When you get out of your... When you get out of a refrigerator box 60 times in a row with your grandchild and she laughs fully and <clears throat> gratefully and just wants to do it again and yeah. again and again and never loses, never loses a yeah. sense of how, how much fun it is, my uh, life sponge soaks that up pretty strongly. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so how did you get into this world? Acting, you mean the, directing, acting? et cetera. Well, I started out. Uh, uh, I started out in high school. My brother was in a production of Camelot uh, okay. at our at what was soon to be my high school. I was thirteen, so I hadn't gone there yet. Where was this? This was in Denver, Colorado, where I grew up. Cool. And and my sister Nora, who continues to do stand up now, she had done plays as well. And my brother was playing one of the knights in Camelot, and he came out. He's a beautiful singing voice, and uh, this was an excellent production. It was such a good high school production that it was actually transferred to a community theater Hmm. for a run. That's how good it was. Okay. Anyway, I'm watching my brother come out and sing the the opening song, Mm -hmm. which establishes the story of Camelot at the top, and I am mystified because I agree fully at Mm. 13 years old that he is a a knight of King Arthur's Round Table. He comes out and he starts singing about it, and I go, oh, yeah, he is. (laughs) And that mystified me. I mean, I just agreed. Mm-hmm. I just agreed, even yeah. though I knew that he wasn't that. Mm-hmm. And that was such a, an amazing thing. I thought, I, you mean, I can be somebody else just by saying I am. And <laughs> everybody else will agree for some period of time that that is the case. That was what started the chase. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of get away from some of those existential realities that we spoke of earlier. Yes, you you have an opportunity to, to, to live a different life or some framework, and everybody seems to agree to that process. And I I couldn't get enough of it. I, I did as many plays as I could get in and get my hands on. I In high school, because of a great little community theater run by the Catholic Youth Services, uh, it was called The Original Scene. Mm-hmm. I did like 19 productions in high school. Whoa. And I did ones at my own school. I did ones at other people's schools. I did Denver Public Schools. You were addicted. Uh, shows. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And and I was r- running really fast away from whatever I thought I was. So it was really great to spend any time away from that. Explain. What do you mean? Well, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was really running away from until okay. much later. But I was I was running away from a sense of. Um, uh, a fear of my own being in some way that, mm. that these were respites 
Um, mm. These uh, these plays were respites from that, and and it was life and death for me in a way that that obviously is not extraordinarily healthy. Uh, so that took a while for me to um, to kind of come to terms with, and and in in the process, I also thought I was learning acting, which took much much yeah. longer yeah. than I thought it would. So this the, this this life and death running away from was this just like the general angst of growing up or was it something deeper? I don't know about I I I think it just had to do with upbringing and family drama and and uh, the murkiness of of uh, of uh, you know the just the way in which family works and uh, my family at the time when I was started high school was not incredibly happy my parents were not incredibly yeah. happy and it just seemed like a good fit that's mm. why i never wanted to go home mm. so uh, i would go f- from play practice t- i would you know it's I, I i when i wasn't swimming in high school i was at play practice so hmm. and even when i uh, there were times when we were doing winter shows where i would finish pl- i would finish swimming and go to play practice so it was a way to just be someplace else hmm. uh, and and be away from what was a really challenging family life but um you know the the beauty of grace is that it unfolded in my family life through uh the wonders of divorce uh, and (laughs) other things Uh, got a lot got a lot better okay my my parents uh, chose to separate and divorce and that relieved a lot of pressure on on me and then you know people grow up and we we eventually a lot of us got a lot healthier in a lot of different ways All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, a lesson about acting from the movie Tropic Thunder. Yes. Also, John talks about playing bad guys. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We have long-form interviews for all your pop culture needs. Music? Try our Springsteen interview. Television? The creators of HBO's The Deuce. Books? John le Carré talking about his years as a spy. You can find Fresh Air on the NPR One app and wherever you get your podcasts. So, John, we were just talking about some of the strife in your childhood. Did some of that strife shape the kind of actor and now director that you are today? Uh, certainly. Uh, uh, it certainly framed a, a, a grand level of black humor where when okay. things go wrong, I have a tendency to laugh. Uh, and uh, and those definitely came from circumstances <laughs> in, my, in my family where it just uh, – there was no other – choice but to laugh yeah uh, uh, you know when you're when you're uh, arguing with your brother and your mom screams at you stop it stop it you're killing me mm-hmm. that's uh, that's a phrase that makes you laugh after a while because you're like is it really about you because we're just fighting with each other yeah. is that, also mom you're really, still alive does this yeah exactly does this really reflect on you in any way yeah but it, but after i mean it was great i mean it was that was a humor was a was a has constantly been a good tool when things go badly yeah. So you end up at Catholic University? I yeah, believe. in Washington, D.C. I uh, live not too far from Catholic. Where Actually, do you live? I Don't am... tell me the exact address. 
<laughs> uh, I am a few blocks north of Union Station. Okay, so you're in Northeast. I'm in Northeast, and sometimes okay. on my morning run, I pass by Catholic. It's a beautiful no, campus. Oh, great, great. Yeah. It is a beautiful campus. I was just there. Okay. I did a I did a uh, a workshop for the students there that was interesting and fun, and the university I went there kind of in an unconscious way because I knew I wanted to do theater. It had a reputation of being a good theater school. My mm-hmm. sister was enrolled there as a bachelor of fine arts student, mm-hmm. and I just kind of went there because she was there, and that that's the reasoning. I didn't. Uh, I mean, I think they take people take so much more care about their college choices now than. Uh, people did when I was younger. But Too much care, just in my me. opinion. I think so too. I Go think. to school. So you know, just try it out. See yeah. how it, see how it works for you. But I, 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 that's that's why I went there, and I and I learned a lot there, and I certainly learned a lot about philosophy, religion. Um, um, math, history, those kinds of things. I got a the Bachelor of Fine Arts degree I got was primarily liberal arts. Okay. And then after that, you just say, "I'm going to be an actor now," or was it? Yeah, more than that's that? exactly what happened. Okay. I just, I just, uh, I started doing, uh, you know, auditioning everywhere I could. But I ended up getting an audition for the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis for their touring company of Frankenstein and ended up being cast as the creature in that production. The creature. (laughs) Yes, the creature. It was a thing called Frankenstein Playing with Fire. It uh, was an adaptation of the novel. And so it was really heady and, uh, and philosophical as well as, as gothic in nature. And so I toured with that, uh, for a little less than six months, and it had an in-house run. And Garland Wright, the artistic director of the Guthrie at the time, asked me to join the company, and uh, I wisely decided to. He was committed to company. The The apparatus was committed to company. We were in rep all the time, so you were doing one part in rep. one play. What's one rep? Part in, repertory theater. So gotcha. you'd do one part in one play and one part in another, there, uh-huh. and we'd, and the stage would change over nightly and you do whatever you know in whatever schedule okay. so you were uh, you were constantly being asked uh, a, a woman i worked with said the company is great because everybody has to deal with being miscast uh, <laughs> and uh, so it asks you to stretch it asks you to consider playing things that you're not necessarily comfortable playing and you have to figure out how to do that and so i really learned how to act there yeah and it seems like that being forced to play all different types of roles totally informed your work on screen later on, huh? Absolutely. I, I, I uh, would would I, f- I would fall into kind of a groove of playing uh, some things, and I would try to figure out how to get out of it so I could play <laughs> other things too. And I was able to do a wide variety of things, and it, uh, a part of it was just a simple acceptance of my own capability of human evil, which helps... <laughs> Helps anybody who's going to try to try to be an actor. You just threw a doozy out there. My own capability for human evil. <laughs> Expound well, on that, please. Uh, I mean, as an actor, if you're going to really reflect humanity, yeah. If you're really going to do that job, if you're really going to take Shakespeare seriously yeah. and hold a mirror up to nature, part of what you have to hold up to nature, uh, the mirror up to nature, is the nature of of how humans embrace and enact evil mm. in their own lives mm. and how they bring it forth in the world. Okay. And so when asked to play, you know, people who are sociopathic or who have evil intent, as an actor, you have to, I think, you have to first accept the fact that you're fully capable of anything uh, yeah. that would be described as evil. Otherwise, you're not really doing it right. Man. And then the other thing you have to also embrace is uh, human selflessness and human 
the ability to collaborate and to make choices that are selfless and heroic, mm. which also ha- you have to embrace because that, that happens too. It seems as if your understanding of acting is really, really philosophical. You're well, deep, you, you know, I got to say, uh, um, when I saw Tropic Thunder, the movie that... Uh, <laughs> Wait, I just that, said philosophical, uh, and you just said Tropic yeah, Thunder. Yeah, I did. I'm going straight to <laughs> Tropic Thunder, buddy, because that's where we go with this. That's where I drive to. Okay. Just Keep ready. driving. Keep driving. So uh, uh, Justin Theroux and uh, Ben Stiller wrote that script, and mm-hmm. they wrote this character, Kirk Lazarus, that, uh, that uh, Robert Downey Jr. played in the movie. And Kirk Lazarus um, is... <laughs> Is something. Uh, he, he is something. But the other thing is that he talks about acting, and he's not joking. There's not a single mm. joke he tells in that movie. Mm. And it's hysterical and embarrassing because he really shows the way in which actors actually think and talk when they are conscious of their own craft. And it, it is literally the worst kind of navel-gazing <laughs> at the same time that it was so true. And whenever I, whenever I start talking about this stuff, I eventually have to go, okay, I'm going to Kirk Lazarus the crap out of this because there's no, there's no other way to do it. It just is so stupid. It sounds so stupid. <laughs> What's your favorite Kirk Lazarus quote? There are so many. Well, uh, there's a run in that movie that I actually wrote about because I loved it so much. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, I wrote a little like twit lo- tweet longer about it because I just couldn't get enough of it. So they're in the heart of darkness moments in that movie where they're in. This is so funny. I'm already going Kirk Lazarus on it. So um, <laughs> so Robert Downey is trying to save his character. Uh, who's play- He's playing a- a- Kirk who's playing... I believe the character's name is Lincoln Osiris. <laughs> and he's coming in to find Tug Speedman <laughs> and Jay Baruchel and uh, uh, the other actor whose name is escaping me who is so terrific in the movie. But mm-hmm. he played the uh, guy who, who was selling booty sweat, the rapper <laughs> who's selling booty sweat. I forgot <laughs> so how good. crazy this movie this is. This movie is so great. <laughs> so anyway, he goes in there trying to find him. And um, Robert Downey, he starts tearing off his his uh, afro because he's in going, blackface yeah because he's in blackface the whole time and he pulls off his brown uh, contact lenses and now he's wearing his blue contact lenses as Kirk Lazarus and he does this run of his characters that you've seen in the movie because he's talked about playing Neil Armstrong and he's ta- and you've seen him play this uh, homosexual priest at the beginning with Tobey Maguire and coming soon of Father of Flaherty and he's like I'm not Lincoln Osiris. And then he pulls off the afro and pulls out his contacts and goes, or Father Flaherty. And then he goes, or Neil Armstrong. And I go, why is Neil Armstrong's voice like that? Like, I keep on la- I kept on laughing, like, why did he make that choice? Why does Neil Armstrong sound like Neil Armstrong? And I was like, what was that from? And I suddenly realized, Kirk Lazarus is Australian. Oh. And so Robert Downey chose these hard R American R's to mock, <laughs> to mock, to mock an Australian's an, an Australian actor American doing an American accent. accent. That is meta upon it's meta. So, oh, it's so deep, man. And and the you know it's down to the bottom of the pool. He goes all the way to the bottom of the pool. The bottom of the pool. And every time I see it, I go, man, that is great and embarrassing at the same time. What did he say in the movie? I don't read the script. The script reads me. <laughs> the script reads. I don't read the script. Script reads me. <laughs> so what you're saying now is your next directing project is going to be directing Robert Downey Jr. 
playing like eight different actors. Oh God, would that be a joy? Uh, uh, Do would it. Would that be a joy? Do it. He's so you know. I, I mean, I had I've worked with him. You know that that run was so great. That yeah. movie. I'm so glad he got nominated because people discount how hard that kind of comedy is, or how hard physical comedy because is. Comedy especially is hard. physical character character driven physical comedy is really hard to do. Yeah, which is why I'm I've, I've always been so mad that Eddie Murphy wasn't up for Oscars oh. in those earlier films he had where he played like eight different characters. Bowfinger alone. Yes. Um, uh, no, but uh, uh, you know, over and over again. But you know, nobody takes it seriously. That's nobody true. thinks it's hard, and it, part it's of the true. reason why is because you're not supposed to make it look hard. Exactly. Coming to America was hard to do. Hard for Eddie Murphy. to do. Hell, the clumps was hard to do for Eddie. Impossible Murphy. to do. And of course, they make fun of the clumps in the Tropic Thunder. Anyways, more about you. You are the quintessential, perhaps, uh, character actor. What does it feel like to have that kind of title applied to you? Because, like, when you think about it, aren't all actors character actors? Like, one, what is a character actor to you? Yeah. And two, what does it mean to be, like, the character actor? I was on a set once with a guy who's played leading man, and I, I, I said, okay, let me ask you something. What was the last three names of the characters that you've played? And it was, like, Jack, Steve, and Mike and the last three characters I played were like Fred, Frank, mm-hmm. and um, what was the other one? Like Larry. Mm-hmm. Like there are character names in scripts where you get the sense uh-huh. of what what they think yeah. of, of characters. Also, I've come to realize that if there's ever the adjective lumbering <laughs> applied to a character, I likely will get a call. Uh, uh, <laughs> Do you like that? No, not really. I, I don't think of myself as lumbering. I don't think of it. But you know, hey, you sound very graceful the, to me. It's what the marketplace okay. says. So yeah, you, you, you go gotta with it. Yeah, get those right? coins. Yeah, yeah. You got to figure out a way to get pension and health and make sure you, you know, that's a practical thing. But then uh, the other thing I asked him was, what was the last picture car you drove? You know, when they give you a car for your character, and he said, well, it was a Lamborghini Diablo, and mm. it had heated seats. And I was mm. like, yep, mine was a mine was a late model truck, no heat. <laughs> Barely ran. Oh, man. And that's kind of the difference between being a character actor and being a leading man, essentially. Okay. That's what the difference is in terms of how it works. That being said, um, I agree with you that there is no such thing. Mm. Everybody's playing a character, so the nomer's character actor is something that is applied in two different ways. One is that you play the same thing all the time, Mm. where... You know, in the old studio system where you'd have the guy who played the banker in every, yeah, in every movie. Banker, yeah. Now the character actor label is slightly different because you don't expect the character actor to play the same thing over and over they again. They can do it all. Essentially, it's the people, the people who are successful at it, uh, women and men, are people who when they come on screen, your shoulders go down and you go, oh, I'm going to be in good hands. Yeah. You know, when Margot Martindale shows up, you go, oh, I'm, I'm going to be fine. This is going to be great. Or, or when uh, Barry Shabaka Henley shows up, you yeah. go, yeah, I'm, ge- I'm in good hands. Whatever happens gonna next, it's going to be fine. Exactly. So it's clearly not a slur to be called a character actor. Oh, no, I don't take it as a slur at all. No. But do you like the title? I'm 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 I embrace it. I, I okay. I'm a, I, I think that's exactly what I am. I'm I'm perfectly content with being called that. I want to be a character journalist. I think that's what you're doing. 
frankly. Stop I'm not it. joking. I think that's what you're doing. I think you're searching your way through the wide varieties of things that you want to do and you want to talk about. Now you've got this thing that you get to talk about what you want to talk about. Yeah. Isn't that the same thing? I guess so. It's really fun. I'll tell you that. Good. I keep being like, how do they keep paying me to do this? <laughs> Shh. I, yeah. Shh. Let me Don't tell mention you. it. Just keep not mentioning it. And I'm not sure necessarily <laughs> that you are being paid. <laughs> This is public radio, so I'm not sure you're just not taking home tote bags and mugs. Yeah. As I always say, support your local member station because that supports me. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, all right. What has been – you've played so many different types of roles. Which one has been the hardest to get your head in and why? Um, I was doing this one episode of a show that was on with – it was Anthony Anderson, Cole Hauser. It was called Cavill. It was on very briefly. We shot in uh, New Orleans and Katrina. Mm-hmm. After Katrina, and there was an episode where the character I was playing was defending his home from people, uh, home invasion kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was doing this scene where I was loading uh, this pistol, and um, the director came over to me after I did that scene once, and he goes, I just want to just give you one note. Mm. You're the hero. Mm. And it was a really good note because... Um, my tendency is to fall into vulnerability. Mm. I, I make choices about capacity in a character, and likely I uh, make a choice that the capacity of the character is growing at the moment you're seeing it. Yeah. And I took that note and said, oh, no, he knows how to do all this. Mm-hmm. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is what he embraces. His heartbeat goes down in these situations. Uh. And that was a really great note, and one that was that was uh, surprisingly tricky to play. Yeah. Um, and then another one like that in a different way was playing um, John Wayne Gacy on American Horror Story, because yeah. unlike <laughs> unlike Twisty the Clown, even to some degree, unlike other fictional sociopaths I played, and even unlike real sociopaths, potentially I played Arthur Lee Allen in Zodiac. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. Um, just a really disturbing cat, and mm. um, and I felt really uncomfortable for a while really? after playing that. Yeah, because Why? it just all I could think of is all those people who died, mm. uh, all those people who were under his floorboards, and how mm. he never would have gotten caught uh, if he hadn't been so brazenly playful with the police. They just mm. happened on him. Yeah, and then when you watch him in the videotapes that I watched to get ready for that, where he was uh, near the end of his life. He had run out of appeals, and he was going to be uh, executed. And um, and he was so believably innocent in his description until you saw the pictures of this house and mm. where they found the bodies. And, and to be so dissociative, that was a level of kind of human evil that, we're t- that we, I brought up earlier mm, yeah. that made me uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Huh. And I was grateful to do roles after that where I didn't have to kill anybody. <laughs> I, I wasn't, you know, I was a really nice guy. And uh, even, you know, in the following season of The Walking Dead, after that I did that, I got to play um, a man who had embraced the idea that uh, killing was not an option and that we weren't built to kill. So that was a really nice antidote to that. You know, when you were talking about taking notes from directors, how hard is it to be that character actor that shows up on set for these shorter roles? You take a few notes, you nail it, and then you leave. That actually, to me, seems a bit harder than some of the other bigger roles in some things. It can be hard because you're jumping onto a moving train. 
It's mm. particularly hard in television huh. because you're going into a place with enduring relationships of sometimes years. Yeah. And you're the new kid all the time. Yeah. And you're going onto a set where everybody's moving really, really fast because all of the fights have been had and everybody's trying to get their day and you've got to nail it in, in short order. And oftentimes people at many points in, in a television show, especially in later season television shows, they forget to be a host, mm. uh, which is so crucial to an actor coming into the acting department of, a, of an ongoing show. They forget to be a host. Uh, it's totally understandable because, uh, you know, they're on their 70th or, you know, mm-hmm. 60th or 50th or 100th episode. And the shorthand of that has creeped in. And it's hard to remember that this might be the person's first time on, on your set. How do you deal with that? That sounds hard to deal with. Uh, I think, uh, well, I deal with it. When I have an opportunity to be a host, I try to be a really good one. Okay. And when I have an opportunity to come onto a set, I don't expect anybody to be a good host. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 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 I could talk to you all day. I just love this. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. I enjoyed this conversation. This is so much fun. Um, I'll let you go enjoy the L.A. afternoon. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And you the D.C. evening. Thank you so much. Take care. It was nice talking to you. Good luck. All right. Bye-bye. John Carroll Lynch, I so enjoyed that. His new film and his directorial debut is called Lucky. It stars the late, great Harry Dean Stanton. It's out now. Find it. Enjoy it. I definitely did. Also, some fun and exciting news. Beginning this weekend, this little bitty podcast that could is going to be on the radio. The real live radio. Check your local NPR station schedule to see if you can hear it. Go to npr.org slash stations to find yours. And because this show will be on the radio, it's a great time to remind you all to share the best thing that happened to you all week. Because you, my listener friend, could wind up on the radio as well. Share that recording of you telling me your best thing. Send it to samsanders at npr.org. We'll be back on Friday as usual with our weekly wrap. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Talk soon.